Special shout out to today's episode to SeatGeek. We recently partnered with them to become a brand ambassador. What does that mean? Well, for you, it means you get a special discount when you make your first ticket purchase with SeatGeek. With my code, InjuredListPod, you will get $20 off your first purchase with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is a ticket purchasing app that takes all the confusion out of buying tickets to your favorite sports, concert events, and more. They score each ticket on a scale of 1 to 10 to help you know if you're getting a good deal. Green is good, red is bad. My followers get $20 off their first ticket purchase using my code, InjuredListPod. Click on the link in the show notes and browse for your favorite events. Your next big night ever is waiting, and they have the tickets. Fantasy Sports Corp and Underdog Fantasy have teamed up to start your fantasy season off in the win column with Best Ball. What is Best Ball? It's quite simply the easiest way to win. No team management, no trades, no waivers. It's their biggest contest ever and it has only gotten bigger. You simply have to sit and win. You don't even have to set your lineup. Always get your best score every week. Just enter a contest, draft your team, and Underdog will do the rest. What could make this even better? How about free money? Up to $100 using our exclusive promo code. Go online now and use the promo code InjuredList to double your deposit up to $100. You tell them Gingerbread sent you. Good girl. gentlemen please welcome the host of the injured list podcast brian scott What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Injured List Podcast. Your host, Brian Scott. Thank you for joining me once again. Another great episode, and of course, another great guest, Mr. Jeremy Swick, otherwise known as the Average Historian. Um, he's got a passion for history, education, and social media, and uh, he, he's a rugby player. Uh, he's worked at the Football Hall of Fames, plural. And uh, he's the owner of his own media company, and he's going to join us right now and discuss his background and his current situation and um, a little bit different topics than we're used to here on the podcast, but it's always good to mix it up and change it up a little bit. So let me welcome to the stage, Mr. Jeremy Swick. Brian, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine, dude. Thanks for joining us. It's been a, a, a process <laughs> in the making here as we got a little a bit of a hiccup when we tried to schedule the first um, recording of this, <laughs> but we, we were able to iron everything out and here we are. So let's get into it, my man. Um, a rugby player. Uh, you know, everybody on my podcast uh, does something in and around the world of sports or is an athlete in and of themselves. Ironically, I've had two other rugby players on my podcast. Um, I seem to have a potency to bring in rugby players. So tell me a little bit more about your background, where you come from, how you got into rugby. Yeah. So just starting with the rugby, I actually was able to play my senior year of high school, which 
thinking back about 14 years ago, I just realized this is my 14th season playing. Uh, played in college as an undergraduate and a graduate student. And then from there, I actually transitioned to uh, various men, men's leagues across the country. Basically, I realized that since I was out of college, I was moving for different jobs in my field. I wanted something to stay busy and stay active. So I realized if I just join a rugby team, wherever I move to, I get about 40 instant friends. You end up really clicking with, you know, hopefully the whole team, but at least that gives you something to do, some friends to hang out with. And no matter where I was living, you know, everywhere from Akron, Ohio to Hopkins, Minnesota, I just found that connection, of course, Atlanta, Georgia as well. And I actually have a game tomorrow on Saturday. So again, looking forward to it. Just love playing and I want to play as long as I can. Yeah, it's a tough, tough sport for sure. Uh, it's basically football on steroids without the pads. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. Uh, you got to have a certain mentality to be willing to run through a pile of guys uh, with any, without basically any protection whatsoever. Um, so you mentioned that uh, you, you you gain a lot of friends, and I've often thought that the pot, the I'm sorry, the rugby world is much like a fraternity. Where I went to school, it was a club sport, in, and in most colleges across the country, it is. Was that the case where you were? Yes, it sure was. It was a club sport at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And were you able to have access to a lot of the healthcare on campus when, with regards to like the sports medicine facilities and training staff and whatnot? Yes, I mean, we always were able to book a trainer. I mean, it was a smaller Division three school, but I feel like if we needed help, we could get it. Uh, so definitely, definitely we weren't uh, considered a varsity team by any stretch of the imagination, but when we had resources, we needed it, or we had resources, we could get it. We had a lot of people in kind of those fields already on our team, which always helps with, you know, diagnosis and injuries or just talking about things like that. Sure. Yeah. It's always good to have a colleague or a teammate who knows a little bit about the profession. So now you majored in art, you majored in history, if I'm not mistaken, or if I don't have that right, please correct me. But you you used that background and those degrees and ended up becoming a historian in not one, but two football hall of fames. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in that and what your role was? Yeah, so it's kind of winding a long story. Long story short, uh, my undergrad was in history. I was going to be a teacher, education, social studies. I really had a fate, you know, I think everyone, if you're going to history, you end up having that favorite high school social studies or middle school social studies history teacher that you really kind of like, maybe emulate. And so my original plan was to be a teacher. And once I started getting into it and kind of had the opportunity to pivot, I decided to go to grad school at Eau Claire as well. And that's where I earned my master's in public history to do museum work. Now, we had talked about the football museums, and I was fortunate at Eau Claire, Brent Hensel, who now is actually the current curator for the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame, went to Eau Claire about 10 years prior to I did. And our professors saw saw me that I was on a very similar path towards my interests and just what I kind of gravitated towards. I actually ended up writing my master's thesis on college football stadiums in the 1920s, looking at stadiums at Illinois, Minnesota, 
and Indiana, the Memorial Stadiums. And so through that, I actually had the opportunity to intern at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2016, where being a kid from Wisconsin, I actually, it was the same year as Brett Favre's induction to the Hall of Fame. So I remember as a intern, I didn't think it could ever get any cooler. That would be the pinnacle of not my career, maybe, but those experiences. Sure. Now we fast forward a little while and in 2018, I was offered an accepted position as the historian and curator at the college football hall of fame down in Atlanta. Awesome. So how long did you spend there? So I was there for just over four years and it was such an incredible experience. I had the opportunity to do ESPN, be on CNN, talk with you know, national news outlets on a regular basis, do print, do interviews. And it just kind of continued my love and interest and really kind of gravitated towards the the digital space, which I didn't think as a museum professional, that really would have been the trend. But having all those opportunities, it was one of those times where I was just, I think I was like a sponge. I tried to soak in every experience and every opportunity I could get. That's, yeah, I, I, I noticed at the, well, so as part of the Fantasy Sports Corps, which is the group I belong to, we were down at the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, in Canton back uh, beginning of August. And that was my first time there. And uh, uh, it, was, it was an awesome experience. We were able to get a free ticket into the Hall of Fame as part of the expo that we were part of, which was the National uh, Fantasy Football Expo, which is becoming a bigger and bigger event every year. This was the first year I attended. And I could see a lot of the technology um, implemented at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That one really cool virtual reality um, locker room experience where Vince Lombardi comes out and talks to you. Uh, that was pretty sick. Uh, it felt like you were really, really in the room with them. It was really cool. Um, so I can see where that stuff is kind of headed toward that digital age. Um, so what was like a, a day in the life of being a museum curator for the College Football Hall of Fame and, and, and your time at the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Did you have to handle and coordinate with getting a lot of the memorabilia? Did you, did you deal with the athletes as well that were inductees and stuff? So it was great at the pro football hall of fame where I first started, it was during the induction season, which is the summer. And we always have to reach out to the players. And I think at that point I didn't really do the reaching out when I was at the pro football hall of fame, it was kind of our supervisor, supervisor, Christy Davis and Jason Atkins who did the 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 main reaching out but it was funny because of course someone like Favre had a ton of memorabilia sent it in we kind of did one of those mock locker rooms as a display well of course and I learned this and this definitely came in handy when I was at the college football hall of fame a lot of players good better and different almost everyone has an ego and I think some of that is what got them to the level of superstar status that they they ended up being at and so I remember a story. We had Marvin Harrison in that uh, class as well with Favre. And his locker was pretty bare. And I remember they reached out back out to him and was kind of say, hey, you're going to be next to Favre. And so we'd really hate to see Colts fans come through and see your locker nearly empty. <laughs> the next thing you know, we're getting his high school track shoes where he won like 
four state championships. <laughs> he calls and asks if he can like bring his indie car because he was like a part owner in an indie, <laughs> you know, in an indie car company or whatever. And of course, that that kind of you know, jumped, <laughs> like, the, jumped the gun. <laughs> but it, it just made me laugh. And so when I was at the College Football Hall of Fame, part of the job every year is doing the induction ceremony. And at, th- at that point, I was the one reaching out to the players and I kind of took that little piece of information, you know, put, put it back in my brain. And of course, some players just have more, some more interested. And I always give him props whenever I talk to him about it. But Tory Holt, he was one of the first guys I really worked with for his induction. And he's asking me, you know, kind of what, what we're looking for. And I explain. And of course, a couple weeks later, I mean, he had everything from his, almost all his jerseys to back then, instead of like a big old fancy locker room, you had your stool. So he sent in his broken busted down stool. And I still, I still talk to Tori to this day about it. And it was just a really cool to see someone lend us all those things. And just, again, that helped me later on when I talked to the other players in that class, I'm like, Hey, Tori sent a lot of stuff and here it all is. We don't want you guys to feel like you're not represented because at that point, then it's just on them if their their locker or their space looks bare, you know. Yeah. Well, did you did you ever encounter that where you had a player that just didn't have a lot of stuff and was just like, "That's all I got, take it or leave it," kind of thing? Yeah. So it's funny you mention that. At times, especially when you go farther and farther back with some of the players, there's just not it's not the same amount of memorabilia. Sometimes it's 20, 30, 40 years ago, and so a lot of times when they you know, respond and tell us, Hey, we don't have a lot of stuff. That's when I started and continue to develop relationships with the universities themselves. Hey, player XYZ is being inducted. We reached out to him. Either they might not be responsive or they just tell us they don't really have any kind of memorabilia like that to display. A lot of times the university will help out and maybe send a replica helmet or a throwback jersey that would be something kind of like what they the player would have worn. And so it was great, you know, developing those relationships with the schools, with the players. And sometimes it was fans that I knew maybe had a, you know, someone's jersey. Hey, can we borrow this for, you know, eight, nine months or whatever, whatever it may be. And it kind of goes into the day and day to day at the College Football Hall of Fame. I was joked. It was kind of like a episode, I'd say a combination of Pawn Stars and American Pickers, because you really never knew what someone would call and reach out about. I remember I had uh, Jay Berlanger's childhood lifetime scrapbook from one of the family members that donated it. I never thought I'd see the first Heisman Trophy winner in diapers. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. (laughs) I wonder, so if you weren't getting it from family members or the athletes themselves, did you guys have to get that stuff authenticated? And if you did, who did you, who did you have to go through to get that, to make that happen? So a lot of times it was us authenticating it, you know, going back in the, in the record books or, you know, doing, doing the game, excuse me, doing the game by game, looking through programs and trying to do the best we can with it. Of course, when it comes directly from the player, that gives a little more credence, but I always wanted to make sure I I was very sure if I was going to call something a game used item, even though it's just going on the little exhibit tab, 
for me personally, it was okay. I can't confirm this was actually game used. It looks similar, but it, there's you know maybe the stitching's different, or so a lot of times it would end up me being game issued or game ready. To not, I, I never wanted to mislead anyone to thinking that it was a game used item and maybe it wasn't. And so a lot of times it came back to researching ourselves and, you know, really digging through, uh, you know, usually if it was newer players, I mean, a lot of times I remember when I think Illinois and Penn state went to that like six overtime game, I was sitting there watching the game with my buddy and my rugby team actually. And on Saturday, I'm like, Oh, while this game's going on, I reached out to both, um, equipment managers and was like, Hey, whatever happens this game, this is a great game. We would love some stuff from this. If, if I didn't know them already, I'd introduce myself. And of course that Sunday, Monday, the programs are coming. Some of the gloves, I think one, we got, a, we got the game ball and it's uh, for me again, it goes back to that social media. It's in that real time. I realized with more modern players, actually, it was me DMing them on Instagram. I remember Jackson He, who uh, was one of the first, not the first, one of the first Chinese-born players and the first to have his Chinese name on the back of his jersey. I DM'd him. I remember I DM'd Sarah Fuller when she was the first woman to play in the Power 5 games. And sometimes the school would reach out and make sure it was legit and not just some random person. But I realized a lot with the social media background, that's how you get to a lot of these players and even coaches now. It's not sending an email to the school that gets passed and bounced around. And, you know, by the time I get an answer, I seen how many people have been CC'd on this message. I'm like, let me just reach out to the player or the coach or even the team pages sometimes. And so like, like I said, it was never the same day. So some days it'd be designing the exhibits and we'd be pen and paper and I'd be drawing what I wanted to look like yeah. other days. It might be going around and seeing what exhibits were up or were, were down. Um, at the College Football Hall of Fame, we had a giant helmet wall with 775. The number always changes of every Division One through NAIA school. And each helmet would light up based on attendance that day. So as you signed in, we'd use like an RFID chip. And the fan or the guest would be able to pick their school and that, that helmet would stay lit up throughout the day. And so at the end of the day, you'd get your usual Georgia's and all that. But I remember I see Eau Claire university, of Wisconsin, Eau Claire's helmet lit up. And I realize <laughs> that they're still in the building and I go talk to them. And I think I end up giving them, you know, a little behind the scenes tour, just that nice. I was excited to see a division three <laughs> school that I went to yep. up and lit up, you know, that's awesome. I, I've yet to be uh, to the college football hall of fame. I'll have to make a drive down there. Not too far from me. I'm here in Charlotte, North Carolina, so it's not not a terrible drive. So, so of all your time doing that, I, I imagine you've um, amassed quite the Rolodex <laughs> of former players, current players, and whatnot. Um, was there any one particular piece of memorabilia that kind of sticks out in your mind as this is like the holy grail, or this is like this is my Thing. If I could, you know, save and curate any one item from all these museums and stuff that I've been a part of, this would be it. Is there anyone that kind of strikes you uh, from the world of sport anyway that, that, uh, think yeah, that? Abs 
Absolutely. So it's funny that you mentioned that I kind of have the go-to. So growing up, I collected football cards and you can see if you're watching, you can see the background behind me. I, I collect a lot of sports stuff. One of those is cards. And I remember this man reached out to me. This was right before the pandemic. Hey, I'm you know getting older and I'm not really able to keep on to a lot of these things. And do you have any interest in my 1955 tops all American football cards. And of, of course, if you don't know about those, it's 90 of the hundred players are our college football hall of famers. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, 88 of the, excuse me, 88 of them were alive in 1955. 12 had passed already. Oh, wow. Okay. This man had 79 of the 88 possible signed. Wow. By the players. And of course, I'm now digging into understanding how he has this incredible collection. It turns out he grew up in the Bronx in, you know, the, the 50s. And he realized that living in New York, he couldn't get the home team a whole lot to sign. But back then, the players would take a cab or maybe a bus to and from the team hotels at, uh, you know, Yankee Stadium, for example, because he did the same thing with the baseball cards. He would go as a kid and get all of them signed. And of course, we're talking, and he's still kind of deciding what he wants to do with them. He clearly made it clear he did not have an interest in selling them. But I'm like, until you see how much they might be worth, no one wants to sell anything until <laughs> they they start to take a look. And I remember, of course, it's you know February of 2020. You know, March comes around and, you know, the world's on fire at that point. And I am still calling this guy every other week. At one point, I think we were furloughed for about a month or two. And I'm still calling this guy every other week. <laughs> just check in to see how he's doing. And, you know, because I knew it would be such an incredible collection. Yeah. And I learned as a curator, you never tell people your stuff is going to go on display permanently. And you just can't because of how many items you get. At almost any museum, it's probably eight to maybe five to eight percent of the actual collection is what's on display. The rest are stored securely in the archives. He's the first guy and the only guy, and I've worked at five or six different five museums now. He's the only guy I told him, if you give us these us, if you give these to us, it's going on display. I can tell you exactly where it is, where it's gonna go on display. And I was like, mark my words, it's gonna happen. And Eventually, you know, about nine months later, he donates them. And I just remember getting that package. And I there's a card of the four horsemen in Notre Dame. All four of them signed. Um, we didn't even we didn't really even need to authenticate them. Of course, it could have been sent to a place like PSA, but I mean at that point, we are we are very confident in all the cards and especially with them being donated in that sense. It, it was another way to authenticate him. And he did the same thing for the 1952 baseball set. So the Mickey Mantle, Roberto Clemente, or sorry, Clemente was 55, but Jackie Robinson, all those guys donated to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He then also donates this 1948-52 exhibit football card set, black and white cards. They're famous for being the first cards that were really just given as cards or sold as cards. Before that, it was a lot of premium free items. You buy tobacco, you buy cigarettes, you buy gum. That's, that's how you get your card. These were just in slot machines, and 
Uh, it was just another, that was probably one of my favorite, favorite items. The, the four horsemen was my favorite card, yeah. but it was just cool to get an entire, you know, almost hundred card set. That, that is an awesome story. And I'm sure that dude could probably rattle off the dates and the locations that he got all of them signed. So I'm sure you wouldn't have to, you know, think long and hard about authenticating them after you're talking with him. Absolutely. So um, you mentioned that he had some baseball stuff. Was there any like cross collaboration between the pro football hall of fame, the college football hall of fame and any of the other sports when it came to like looking for advice or helping curate stuff or, you know, obtain things. Did you guys ever kind of work together? Yes. It's funny. You mentioned that you think this world's huge and it actually becomes pretty small when you get something that niche. We all, a lot of us know each other. We've heard the names or we've met each other at the conferences. Uh, Actually one of the most recent interns at the pro football hall of fame, he had reached out to me to do a podcast interview, you know, several months, you know, last year at some point, or maybe two, I don't know, maybe two years ago. And I remember he had applied for the intern position, similar to what I had when I was at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And it was just a reason to, again, re- reach out to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, just like, hey, this guy's coming through. He's a good guy. You know, definitely give him some consideration and all that. But we always talked. We would always... You know, you have a question, you reach out, you put it in one of the, we had like a group email, like it's literally like a hall of fame or hall of fame email and just bounce ideas, everything from what happens when we don't have paperwork filed properly and a family wants their item back and we can't prove, you know, it's ours or theirs or, you know, induction procedures or how to make it better and, you know, tips and tricks you learn. So it's definitely a really cool network of people. Um, I you I realize even just working in museums in general, you reach out to a museum that let's say I'm going to New Orleans, I might reach out to one of the museums there and I want to visit. And it's a great another opportunity to network and bounce ideas off each other because I think as professional museum professionals, we like to share what we have, we like to share what we know. And it's great to have a listening ear who actually gets what you're saying. Not just your friends and family are like, oh, that's nice. We don't really know what you're saying at this point, but you like it. So, yep. you know, we love it for you. It's it's nice to kind of get those deep ideas uh, out of your brain, I guess. Yeah, I'd love to sit at a bar maybe over a drink or two and a cocktail and uh, with you guys and kind of listen in on some of the stories. I'm, sorry, I'm sure there's some really cool ones that you guys share amongst each other that maybe we never get to hear. <laughs> So Absolutely. I'll have to talk to you when we're done recording. I got a I got an old uh, baseball that supposedly was signed by the Dodgers at some point, I think in 55 or 56. Okay. And uh, I got it from an uncle who lived in Queens, who did a, much like the same thing that you mentioned, that gentleman from the Bronx, where uh, he was an avid baseball fan and got a lot of the old programs and things from uh, his days in Flushing, Queens, not growing up not too far from where the Mets ended up playing and um, at Shea Stadium. Um, I'll have to get your information about on the, who to contact over there at the baseball hall of fame. <laughs> That's another conversation for later. Um, there was another question I wanted to ask. Okay. So you talked about the sports stuff. Was there ever any, or I should say, what was there ever a period in time during your time at the sports hall of fames where you got an object or some, or something that was, you know, memorabilia that really was odd and kind of struck you as odd and maybe even didn't, at all have anything to do with sports, but because it was attached to something in or sports or an athlete that it became part of the collection and you had to 
curate it and, and organize it and display it. That's a, that's a, that's a good one. I'm trying to think nothing, nothing too out of the ordinary. Um, at times it would be something like, I'm trying to think actually, I don't have anything that comes to mind that was super out of the ordinary. I mean, for example, I think the scrapbook was pretty out there that, yeah. you know, it didn't have a whole lot to do with the football. <laughs> it was funny because it kind of mentioned his career, but it was a lot more, more of his life. Than, more like uh, family photos and than, stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. It was, it was almost all family photos and literally like a little tiny section of his time in college at that point. Cause he didn't even play in the pros. Yeah. It was like him getting married and kids and all that stuff. And so, you know, a lot of times with that, but, I think one of it is that when I was there, you always want to be real objective about what you're getting and what you're saying yes and no to. Yeah. There'd be times where maybe I come, you know, get offered to go and visit a site or something like that. And I realize this is probably nothing that we really want or need. And, or some, someone reach out and they have like old newspaper clippings. Um, and at times it'd be like, you know what, this probably maybe belongs in your family. Maybe you guys would really like to cherish and, you know, hang on to it or, Hey, we would love to get some scans of these newspapers, but you guys can actually keep the physical ones. Um, because you, you're always fighting. It's like a 3d game of Tetris in the archives. You're trying to make as much as you possibly have fit in the smallest cubic foot you possibly can. So, a lot of it was being aware of already what we could and couldn't take. A lot of people love donating books and the way I would get them, we had several hundred and maybe, you know, probably almost a thousand different books about football at the college football hall of fame. But people would say, Oh, I have a ton of books for you. I'm like, okay, can you give me a list of the titles? Because we wanted to make sure that we didn't have them. We don't need 17 copies of, <laughs> you know, one book as great as that might be. Right. And usually that would kind of scare them away because they just wanted to get rid of it yeah. more than, you know, go through it. But yeah. it was definitely being tactful about what we would and would not accept. Sure. Was there anything looking back that you turned away that maybe you like, oh, man, I wish I had the opportunity to get my hands on that again. I can't. Ooh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because uh, a lot of times it was, uh, it was just stuff I don't think anyone really wanted or. Okay, this is a good example. I can't think of his name. His last name's Adams. He played for the Patriots in the 70s. There was a couple game balls that were really cool. And we actually took them, but I didn't even process them into our collection. I called them. I knew the guy up at the Patriots Hall of Fame at the time and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I reached out to the Patriots guy first. And he was like, oh, yeah, we would take them. And so I literally, it literally went from them. I think I maybe signed like a transfer paper and sent them right up there because it, it was cool, but it was nothing that had to do with anything, the college football hall of fame, the college experience. Right. So right. again, it goes back to that networking and knowing each other. I remember, I think it was the baseball hall. They had one of those lifetime pass tickets for, uh, for football, for one <laughs> of the football stadiums. And they sent them you know, just sent them to us. Hey, we think you guys, it's been in our collection. We've never processed it. Everyone has a everyone has like a a table or a shelf of stuff. They just kind of <laughs> that's for the next guy in twenty years. You know, we yeah. just kind of you just kind of keep pushing it down the yep. you know, down, down the way. I think we all have one of those uh, closets in our house. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe exactly. maybe a space in the garage too, or the <laughs> attic. So so if 
if there was one piece of memorabilia while you were in the Pro Football Hall of Fame or the College Football Hall of Fame that you would love to get that maybe you never came across or that you've been searching for for your entire career, anything like that that you can think of? So it's really a stuff of lore, but it is the first Akron Pro's championship trophy believe 1920 i want to say the akron pros won the championship even before the nfl and there's like a picture of the trophy but it disappeared almost instantly really okay it's it's one of those white whales holy grails (laughs) it probably had been destroyed i i would guess you know probably 1921 1920 you know but no one's ever seen it it's definitely worth uh worth looking up to see it's just one of those that it'd be so cool to find or have or you know, something like that. Were there pictures of that in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? I believe there may have been pictures. Yeah. I don't know if they had them on display, but I, I'm now I'm thinking. I vividly think of a. There's a newspaper that has them hoisting up the trophy, and okay. that's like the last anyone's ever seen of it. For all we know, they might have melted it down and sold it for money in the depression or something. Exactly. We, I mean, it's just one of those things. I'll, I always do laugh that Jer, Jay Burwanger's Heisman was used as a doorstop as well. <laughs> was it pretty beat up? Yeah. Oh yeah. It was pretty, we don't really? have it, but uh, it was, it was definitely one of those pretty beat up from what I, what I've heard. <laughs> yeah. You wonder what some of these people do with these things when they take them home. Well, that's awesome, yeah, man. Some great going, stories. Some of them go in junk drawers. Some of them, some of them go in garages. I've learned, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's funny because I think a lot of times that, you know, life happens, life moves on. Sure. That was really, especially in the college, it was three to four years to two years of their life. And, you know, yeah. priorities change. So a lot of times it's like, and, you know, I think some players get ready to kind of move on from that and sure. maybe don't want it in the family because they want to cause problems or even sometimes the kids aren't interested in the same, you know, in the same way. So, maybe instead of selling it, they're able to kind of have their legacy and, you know, story continue on. Yeah. Totally makes sense. And I'm sure a lot of them do feel that way. Well, we got to get you, we got to get you up to the next year's football fantasy football expo with us in Canton and maybe use you to tour us around, give us some personal tours and guides <laughs> through the, through the football hall of fame. That'd be awesome. We'll, we'll, we'll get you up there. We'll figure out a way. Keep your schedule open next uh, August. Next <laughs> so, August, definitely. So, so let let's kind of bring you into the present. Where where are you now? What are you up to? I know you've got your own media company that you've been working on for the last few years, and you've built that up. Uh, in the world of museums and curation, what what have you got going on right now? Yeah, so I do a little bit of a little bit of everything. As you mentioned, I I run Swick Media, SwickMedia.com, and it started again as social media. We did a lot of, I realized when I was at one of my museums, we would spend so much money outsourcing to a large company or an agency. And nine times out of 10, they wouldn't even do it the way we wanted. So it got to the point where I was like, I want to learn how to do some of this. So I think it started just to kind of make it easier on me that I could design an exhibit and get it all print, you know, and skip the middleman and send it to printing. So actually the last exhibit I did at the hall of fame was completely designed by me. We bought the lockers and then we were able to fill the lockers. And I believe we were hosting sec nation or excuse me. Yeah. The sec. Yeah. Sec. Uh, sorry. Sec media days. And so each locker had memorabilia from each of the schools in the sec. And 
you know, the boards had the list of the Hall of Famers, and, you know, it was just a really fun experience. But I've actually, last year in 2022, I moved back to Wisconsin, which is where I'm from. I'm at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society as their archivist, and really taking a lot of the skill sets I've learned at the last four or five museums and finding a way to work in the African-American community and really just share that story, show what we all have to offer there. And it's been a really exciting and real rewarding experience, not only to be home, but doing something that I felt continued to have value um, and maybe, I wouldn't say, you know, an underrepresented area community. And it's just exciting to kind of bring that life and showcase what we all have. Going off that, I really miss sports. I miss talking with athletes. And so last or earlier this year, I started my podcast into the unknown and it really just documents and shares people's personal journeys and stories and experiences. And I think for me being a historian by trade, I've always found and found interest in people's stories and learning more about who people are and how they got there. I think a lot of times when we see athletes or, you know, leaders in government or teachers or, you know, you name it, it almost feels like we've all, they've always been there. And one of the goals of the podcast is really to dive deeper and understand where they came from and, you know, the experiences they had to get them to the level of success that they have today. Going off that, I didn't want it to be just players or just coaches. And so it really was an opportunity to open to a wide variety of everyone from, I had my seventh grade social studies teacher on the podcast, which was, you know, a lot of fun for my friends growing up to see that interaction. I've had teammates that I played rugby with and really everyone else in between. It's just, I feel like everyone has a story and it's been fun to share that. Yeah. I, I especially love the title because, you know, being that you're a historian and you have all this knowledge of things past um, and and present, uh, nobody can see into the future. And so I listened to a few of your episodes and the best part about it was kind of toward the end where you're always kind of like, okay, well, what's next? And, you know, it, that's like a hard question to answer for a lot of people. And it's such a broad idea to think of like what could be next. And a lot of times we don't even know ourselves. And so it leaves it really kind of open-ended, which is kind of cool. I kind of like that. You know, there's like this unwritten ending to the, to the show. So I, I highly recommend it for those of you that haven't checked it out. So Jeremy, if people want to reach out to you, if they have some questions or looking for advice to maybe get into the field that you've done, or maybe looking to get some help with your media company and looking to work with you, um, let us know how they can find you. And I'll be make, you know, make sure everybody that we put all this information in the show notes and so they can, and li- with links and everything so they can reach out to you. But is there anything that you'd like to share with the, with the audience today um, to let them give them some advice or maybe some words of encouragement if they're looking to get into your field or maybe do some of the things that you've done in the world of sport? Absolutely. So just where you can find me, swickmedia.com. You can find me at The Average Historian on almost every social media platform. I believe I'm at Real J Swick on Twitter. And then for the podcast, it's at pod.intotheunknown on pretty much all social platforms as well. As far as advice, man, I think one of the biggest things is finding something you really enjoy and doing whatever you can to keep doing that. Even if you're not, you know, maybe getting paid for it right now, 
But if it's finding you happiness and it's finding you joy, finding ways in your day to kind of keep pursuing that in, in whatever way possible. It might be scrolling on Instagram or Twitter and just kind of, excuse me, X. It might just be scrolling and just finding things you find interesting. Or if you're working in museum, in the, if you're interested in the museum field, reaching out to a university or a museum and seeing if you could possibly volunteer. I mean, volunteer once a month, once a week, maybe, you know, periodically or maybe for a specific event just to kind of get your feet wet and learn a little bit more about that field. Again, I think one of the great things I've learned about the museum field is a lot of people who are in it love to talk about it and love to kind of share pieces of advice. You can find me on LinkedIn, just type in Jeremy Swick. And if you have any real museum questions or how I got started or ideas to continue to improve or, you know, just get your, just get your foot in the door, feel free to reach out. I'm, you know, more than willing and interested to talk to people. And I think it's just really just keep, you know, pursuing what you're enjoying in life. Yeah. And again, I'll make sure I have all that information in the show notes, everybody. So if you're looking to reach out to Jeremy or you just want to check out some of his content on his podcast and on his media um, company, um, I'll make sure all that stuff's in the, in the show notes. Well, Jeremy, you had some awesome stories to share, some really cool experiences. Um, I, I am not a history person, but I appreciate the memorabilia and all the history that comes attached with it. I love, I mean, to be honest, if I could have, I probably would have spent all day in the Hall of Fame just going around by myself, looking at all the different exhibits and reading all the different tags. Um, I, I would, I've been to basically all the Hall of Fames um, with the exception of a few, um, you know, especially the major sports, I've been to all of them. And um, I, I would love to get back there by myself, uninterrupted, and go through all of the displays and read as much as I can. I think for me, the one that really stuck out the most was the Wayne Gretzky exhibit at the Hockey Hall of Fame up in Toronto. I mean, the amount of stuff that they had from his collection, from when he was a young kid with all the score sheets and everything, just blew my mind. Um, and it was just so cool to see, just, you know, because he's such a godlike figure in the world of hockey. And I'm a fan of every sport, but, and, and that was just something that, you know, stuck out at me. But the Football Hall of Fame, I have to say, they did some wonderful things over there. Um, and they're still doing some wonderful things over there to really bring it up to speed and, and modernize it. And uh, that exhibit I, I, I had mentioned earlier um, with the locker room and the Vince Lombardi reality, virtual reality thing was out of this world. That was so cool. I could have sat there all day and watched it on replay. <laughs> so um, it's a very I, cool I world. I have to laugh. You mentioned that we were actually when right towards the end of my internship there in 2016, we were the, some of the beta testers on that. We got to set it and watch it. And it was just really cool because they were still, it was still a work in progress, but it was one of those things that was like under construction, but they're like, all right, come in here. We need, we need some test dummies to tell us what you think. And me being from Wisconsin, you know, I ate the Vince Lombardi part up and it was pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. I won't ruin it for people that haven't been there yet, but it's definitely worth going to. Totally, totally worth the time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Jeremy Swick, awesome stuff there. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of change of pace for us here at the Injured List podcast, but it's good to have some fresh uh, things to talk about and some really different things to talk about as well. Um, so Jeremy, thank you for joining us. I uh, hope we can uh, talk with you again soon. And uh, thanks for coming on the Injured List podcast. Thanks again, Brian. I appreciate it. 